0: July 1937, the world's most famous woman pilot disappears during her attempt to circumnavigate the globe. In 1988, the International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery, a small nonprofit known by its acronym, TIGER, began a science-based investigation of the Earhart disappearance. Decades of forensic research and a dozen South Pacific expeditions have now produced hard evidence from multiple disciplines to provide the long-sought answer to the riddle. In this series of conversations with Jones Sachs, Tiger Executive Director Rick Gillespie takes us step-by-step through the adventures, the setbacks, and the discoveries that uncover the evidence that has solved aviation history's greatest mystery.
1: Hi, I'm Joan Sachs. Like many of you, I've read newspaper and magazine articles, and I've watched television documentaries about Tiger's adventures and discoveries. As a member of Tiger, I've participated in research, and I know there is so much more to the story that has never been told. I've known Rick Gillespie and his wife, Tiger co-founder Pat Thrasher, for many years. So when Rick asked me to help him bring the -the behind-the-scenes story of Tiger's Earhart expeditions to the public in a series of podcast episodes, I enthusiastically agreed. Over the years, there have been 12 Tiger expeditions to the South Pacific, and we've organized the podcast into seasons. To follow the progress of the investigation, you'll want to listen to the episodes and seasons in order. For newcomers, we make it easy to catch up with the story so far by publishing a compilation at the end of each season. Now let's get to the next episode. Hi Rick, the last time we talked, a tiger team was headed into an Alaskan wilderness area to find and inspect the wreckage of a Lockheed Electro, which had crashed in 1943. Can you remind us why they were going?
2: Yeah. We had recovered artifacts on Nicomororo in 1989 and again in 2003 that we thought might be something called dados. This is a a panel that's installed in the cabin of an airplane on the wall down where it joins the floor, just like in a house where you have a little panel at, at the base of the wall. And we wondered if Lockheed Electras had dados installed in them. But to know for sure, we had to find a Lockheed Electra that was still pretty much intact, but nobody had touched because you you can't rely on restored airplanes to give you accurate information about how airplanes were originally constructed because you never know what's been changed during the restoration.
1: What was their function actually? The the Some the, the function
2: of of, of a dado is simply to keep someone from putting their foot through the headliner that is uh, the 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 cloth that goes down the wall, an aluminum panel.
1: So like a kick panel. Oh, a
2: kick panel yeah, this is a good yeah. way to describe it. Got okay. It. Well, did electors have something like this, and if they did, did they look like what we had? Right. Well we had to find an Electra that was still intact that nobody had messed with, that nobody had restored. And we ultimately found that there was one in the uh, Misty Fords Wilderness area, way out in back of Ketchikan, Alaska. It's in the middle of nowhere, up on a mountain, and where the airplane had crashed into the trees. Uh And it was still there, you could see it from the air, but because it was a wilderness area, by law, you couldn't go in there with vehicles of any kind atv's or even land a helicopter anywhere close by right. I that was that thing. was just the rule for wilderness areas so the only way in was on foot and we put together a four-person tiger team uh, accompanied by a couple people from alaska fish and wildlife uh-huh. one of whom had a rifle with him because it was bear country mm-hmm. And,
1: and they knew the area. Did they act as guides? Well, they too? didn't
2: know the area. Uh, we 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 could mark on a map where the wreck was because you could see it from the air, right? But it's not like there was any kind of a trail to it. You just had to go up the mountainside, and and that mountainside was kind of like a a vertical rainforest. It's oh my! Just, uh, tangled and and swampy and extremely difficult going. Hmm. But these guys, I wasn't on that trip. And uh, I'm... <laughs> what time of <laughs> I, year? I didn't envy them at all.
1: Was it midsummer? Yeah,
2: it, it was in the summer when they went up there. And the weather, well, I think they had a little bit of rain, but the weather wasn't the problem. It was just the terrain. I can imagine. They, they had to fly in as close as they could in a de Havilland beaver on floats uh. and go ashore and then head up the up the mountainside. And they did, it took them like a day and a half to get up to the wreck site. Wow. But it was pretty much intact, incredibly so, really. And they were able to examine and actually salvage bits of dados from the airplane. Oh. There were dados in Electras but they didn't look like what we had. Oh. They were very thin aluminum that was riveted to the underlying structure. The, the, the struts on the... The, the st- bulkheads that, uh. that were there. However, that particular Electra was unique in one respect, in that it had a fuselage fuel tank installed because the airplane had been used to ferry company employees for the company that owned it from the uh, Seattle, Vancouver area up to Ketchikan. Hmm. And it's a long haul, too long for an electric. So they had installed this extra fuel tank, just one, in the fuselage. Most yeah. Electras didn't have a fuselage fuel tank. <laughs> uh, Earhart's airplane and the other 10E special were the only Electras that had fuselage fuel tanks except for this one.
1: Did you know that before? Before
2: we, kn- I think we knew that this thing had a fuselage fuel tank, hmm. but it was just a curiosity to us. Oh, that's right. interesting that they did this. Well, when the guys got up there poking around in the wreckage, they noticed that that tank had been insulated from the heater ducts that run along the floor line Ah. to heat the passenger cabin. Because in a passenger airplane, you have to heat the cabin. And it was uh, hot air off a cuffer on the exhaust manifold. So Mm -hmm. it was hot air that was blown down these heater ducts. But that's a problem if you have fuel lines in a fuel tank there because you don't want the fuel lines getting <laughs> hot because it'll, it'll cause vapor lock. Oh, uh, sure. So they had insulated that fuel tank from the heater ducts with big mats of asbestos, big heavy oh. stuff. They, they actually brought back both the dados that weren't like what we had, but also they brought back some of this asbestos matting. I've, I've still got it. <laughs> Really? Yeah.
1: Now, it, it it's, was in a fiber form?
2: Yeah, yeah. It's it's like a mat. Yeah. yeah. So
1: could, um, could you see how it was attached?
2: They took photographs of okay. how it was attached. It was just like tacked up there. It was uh-huh. just laid out. Okay, so that was verification that if you're going to put fuselage tanks in an Electra, you've got to insulate them from the heater ducts. Well, Earhart's plane had heater ducts and they worked. She had to have heat in the cabin too because the navigator was going to be back there. Hmm. So they had to do something. And those asbestos mats were way too heavy if you're going to do the whole cabin, Uh you you, you can't do that. And there's no indication they they did. We, We have pictures of the cabin of the Electra before the fuselage tanks were installed. Hmm. And there's no asbestos mats, but there is what's called a false floor installed, a wooden floor that was on top of the standard plywood floor of an Electra that was covered with linoleum. And this was just a plain plywood floor on top of that. Along the edges by the heater ducts, There was a a strip of wood. For what purpose? Well, we reasoned that maybe what we have are custom built heat shields. Hmm. The one we've, what we have been calling a dado, that we found in 1989 was still very much intact. And on what would be the interior wall of this, this, this sheet of aluminum, there was a fragment of surviving fragment of quarter inch kapok used as insulation uh that is was that a sheet well kapok? i'm yeah yeah kapok is uh cork insulation oh, okay they, they used to use it in life preservers so uh, flexible flotation uh, well it's not flexible so much but this would just be a a sheet of quarter inch kapok that was glued uh to this aluminum surface and on top of that was a a blue woven fabric probably wool covering and i'm talking the surviving piece was smaller than your thumbnail Hmm. that was still caught on one of the uh, attach uh, fixtures to the thing Uh, the, the national transportation safety board lab managed to lose that Oh, you're in, kidding. In, when they had the thing.
1: That doesn't um, sound like something a lab would do. <laughs> well, we
2: were rather disappointed that they lost <laughs> it. But we've got good pictures of it, both mm. when it was in place. And the bottom of this, what we used to call dados and now thought might be heat shields, has a right angle flange that very clearly was nailed to something. Not screwed, uh. not riveted, but nailed. Hmm. And there are marks where somebody had pried it up, like with a screwdriver or something to, to remove it.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: And we went, what the heck was this thing? Well, now we had a hypothesis, a theory that, okay, we know the heater ducts have to be insulated from the tanks. This thing with the KPOC would provide insulation. And there was a strip in the photograph of the airplane when the tanks were uh, out of it, that showed a strip that it might have been nailed to. Hmm. And another thing that was really interesting was that examining the the records of Earhart's airplane, it was delivered with all these fuselage tanks in it and a whole fuel system. And that was delivered to her on her birthday, July twenty-fourth, nineteen thirty-six. But almost immediately within one flight after that, the airplane went back in the shop, and all those tanks came out. Really? And that's when they installed the the, the one, false floor, uh, and that's when the pictures we have were taken. Oh, interesting. Okay. And that actually created all kinds of confusion because there was also a mix-up when Earhart registered her newly de- delivered airplane with the Bureau of Air Commerce. She mistakenly tried to register it NR16020. N meaning the airplane's approved for international flight. R means it's in the restricted category because it won't be carrying passengers and it's got this special modification. Well, it had not been approved for international flight. Huh. She needed to register it in the restricted category, just R, and when she redid the application happened to be when the fuselage tanks were out of the airplane. So the inspection report for the new application had the airplane listed as just having the standard in the wings fuel for an Electra. And so the airworthiness certificate that was issued for the airplane only permitted it to have a few hundred gallons of gas. and nobody realized it at the time. Oh no. And and it was months later before the the before it was Earhart's mechanic Bo McNeely who said, Wait a minute, this isn't right. <laughs> oh, and no. they had to go back and do a whole new inspection of the airplane with the tanks in to do it.
0: Wow. Anyway,
2: we we know that there was, we knew there's something wrong with the initial uh, installation of the tanks hmm. that had to be corrected by putting in this false floor, with the strip that we think this insulation. We think the whole problem was vapor lock because they hadn't insulated the tanks. That's when they discovered it was a problem, but that's all theory. These objects that we found on Nicomararo didn't have a part number, which is odd because yeah. of his from some unknown part of a World War II airplane, it should have a part number stamped in it in several places, but it doesn't.
1: And were they all alike? The ones you found all the same size? Not same... all the
2: same size, they were all the same height. This would be okay. like a, a little freestanding wall ah. that was simply nailed to so the floor. these were just
1: braces for the to hold the wall? To hold uh, the second floor?
2: No, 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 these these were nailed, these were above the, the, the false floor. Okay. So you you have the standard electro floor mm-hmm. and then a false floor on top of that. And then along the edge, a little, a few inches out, you have this strip that we think mm-hmm. these heat shields were nailed to is just like this little wall of insulating uh, panels. Right. That, once the fuel tanks are installed we have pictures of the cabin when the tanks are installed you can't see them because the tanks are in the way very maddening you know it's theoretical it's speculative but it makes a lot of sense Hmm. and it's still that way we think we've got heat shields from the electra but we can't prove it so at this point we've got a whole new idea about our artifacts based on the inspection of the airplane in alaska but there's not much we can do with it. We, we can't prove anything from it. Right. If if they were dados and they were exactly like dados, we could say, hey, we've got an Electra dado. but that wasn't the case. <laughs> we got something else that is actually more interesting, but we can't prove it. Okay, well, what, what else do we have? Well, we got this piece of plexiglass that seems to match the cabin windows in a Lockheed mm. Electra, but we can't prove that either. And then we've got our sheet of aluminum, Artifact 22V1, that we think is from an Electra, but we can't match it to anything on a standard Electra. There's no place that the rivet pattern exactly matches a standard Lockheed Electra, but we reason that, well, hers was damaged and then repaired, and we don't know for sure how the repairs were done, so maybe this is from a repaired part, but again, that's theoretical. We, we don't have engineering orders that specify the rivet pattern. Hmm. So again, we're in, the, we're in the same place. We got an artifact. But we, that that makes a, sense. That makes can, sense. Yep. That, and we can't find any other airplane that it does match. So God, we're, we're kind of in limbo. Um, we're kind of stuck. At, at a dead end with our with our artifacts so by December of 2004 we had all that information from the inspection of the alaska wreck and the reasoning about the the, the heat shields in 2005 i was mostly occupied writing a book that was originally going to be called the suitcase in my closet <laughs> and that's from a quote from betty's notebook where amelia was heard to say george get the suitcase in my closet california and it seems to match a letter she wrote to her mother about some papers that she wanted destroyed in the event of her death and oh. we thought that referred to it it's, it's an example of what appears to be occult information in betty's notebook information that betty couldn't possibly have known kind of like her new york new york new york city and uh, it seems to be norwich city the british shipwreck my original thought was to write a book strictly about the post loss radio signals which are such strong evidence that Earhart did not go down at sea and did end up on nicomoraro and i was able to conclude a a book contract with the naval institute press they're like the university of press for the naval academy wow very high credibility
1: Based on the suitcase in my closet? Yeah, or the, the, the original, the radio radio the original
2: proposal, proposal and contract was for a book called The Suitcase in My Closet. But as I got into writing the book, it soon became apparent that there was much more to talk about. Hmm. And we expanded that to cover the entire period from the construction of the airfield on Howland Island through Earhart's disappearance and then the 1937 government search. And we ended it there when she disappeared and what happened next. And the name of that book was Finding Amelia, the True Story of the Earhart Disappearance. That was published in September of 2006. So I spent virtually all of 2005 writing like mad, doing the research, getting this thing out. And uh, it was published September, 2006 and did really well. And we hoped that that was going to generate publicity Mm. that would help us raise money to do the next expedition.
1: Is that book available?
2: Finding Amelia went through five printings in hard copy, and then they put it out in soft cover. It's still available in soft cover on Amazon and available. Uh, directly from from Tiger through our website signed by the author.
1: <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, That's it, cool. It did really really well. It, it was the, it was the Naval Institute's top seller in the really? next in 2007.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. Yeah.
2: We're planning this ex, this next expedition that we wanted to take place in the summer of 2007. We needed to expand the search of what we called the seven site, which we had pretty much confirmed was the Castaway Campsite, where the bones had been found in 1940. And we also wanted to do a detailed excavation of the old village of the uh, the British colony, because that's where we had found the heat shields uh-huh. in 2003 while the guys were looking for what we came to call the wheel of fortune (laughs) that had been there in the uh, the main lagoon passage but had been apparently washed away by a a storm before the guys could get back and
1: you did verify that there was a big storm in between that time that oh
2: yeah yeah and and it it was very apparent when our team got there in 2003 the the wheel was seen by the new england aquarium expedition in 2002 we got a team back out there in 2003 but in that short interim there had been a storm that just tore the daylights out of that the the shores of that passage and the main passage and apparently washed away the wheel and we wondered well where's the wheel maybe it's up there washed ashore washed ashore So we need to do a much more detailed search of that whole area than the guys could do in 2003. It was inconceivable to us that they happened to find the only pieces of aluminum that were there. (laughs)
1: Right,
2: And we also were investigating the possibility of using a two-seat submarine, manned submersible, called Deep Flight Aviator. This thing was fascinating. They developed this thing initially for sale to private individuals who wanted their own submarine <laughs> to have fun with. Hmm. And it was it was a very different concept. Of course, we wanted to use it to search for airplane wreckage, but the, the way the thing worked was uh, not like a conventional submarine where you actually sink the boat and drive around underwater and then make the boat float again hmm. to come back to the surface. This thing flew underwater. It had dive planes on it that you got it to like neutral, slightly positive buoyancy. And then you forced it underwater. Uh-huh. and And it would stay underwater as you as as long as it kept That's moving right. because the, it, it's like a shark. It, it had to keep moving hmm. to stay underwater. But then if anything went wrong, whoop, it would come back up to the surface, <laughs> which is a good thing.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, there are some drawbacks to doing that if you're gonna search for airplane parts with it, because you can't stop and hover like you can- good point. With like a, a remote operated vehicle that has uh, conventional thrusters on it, sure. that kind of thing.
1: And reverse.
2: And reverse and <laughs> so forth. But we were looking into that and Naya, the ship we wanted to use, was willing to modify their dive deck on the back of the ship to accommodate the sub. We we're wow. really excited about it. But I was getting a lot of pushback from our archaeologist who didn't want to spend any time doing anything underwater. He was a land archaeologist and he thought we should be concentrating on searching on land in the old village for more debris that might have been washed ashore and at the seventh site, He was afraid that any attention spent on the underwater search would deflect resources from the land okay. search. We went back and forth and back and forth about this. Ultimately, we decided against using the manned submersible, not for those reasons, but because it really wasn't practical for detailed searching. You could spot something as you went by. Yes. You know, but, but that's you not don't good get enough. A second chance. And yes. there, there was no way to put a, a grappling claw it, yeah. on it like you can with an ROV. So we couldn't recover anything hmm. with it. And also, you have to be very careful when you talk about putting people down deep in a submersible. Because if you're using a remote-operated vehicle that's just attached to the surface with an umbilical, if things go sideways down there, you're you're gonna lose an expensive piece of equipment. If things go wrong, when you've got people down there, they're gonna die. Hmm. And that has always been our primary concern. I've always said it's not worth hurting life people to look for dead ones. (laughs) We don't do anything that's more dangerous than we need to do to, mm. to accomplish our mission. So we decided we'll we'll go with scuba divers only. We know scuba divers, they can only go just so deep. We've used divers before, but we'll look again, we'll do what we can with divers. So that was the plan. NICU 5 was gonna be planned for July 3rd to August 3rd, full month, 2007 the total expedition cost was gonna be $217,000. We paid a $6,000 deposit on Naya, and they reserved the time for us. And as usual, we had no idea where the rest of the money was gonna come from. We had only raised a fraction of the money that was was gonna take, but we'd been there before. Mm -hmm. We'd raised the money before, so we pressed forward. Half of the charter, $105,500 was going to have to be paid by the 1st of January, 2007. And if we couldn't make that payment and had to cancel the charter, we'd lose the $6,000 deposit. Wow. So there was money at stake here. Well, we were hoping that my book, Finding Amelia, would generate the publicity that would help raise the money. But the problem we ran into, uh, there in, in the fall of 2006, as we're trying to raise this money, is that the Iraq war w- was dominating the headlines because everything was going to hell. There were no WMDs and there was a civil war and it had turned into the disaster that it did. And that was dominating the news. We we couldn't get any traction. I mean, it's hard to compete with that. No. No, And so by December, we weren't even close to having the over $100,000 we were going to need to uh, keep the the, the charter alive. But right at that time, uh, (laughs) as things often happen with this project, something totally unexpected happened. One of our researchers noticed an item on eBay advertised as Amelia Earhart's original flight plan. Well, we all knew that there was no flight plan. <laughs> she did not file a flight plan. There, there couldn't be something like that. So he said, eh, they're not asking for much. I'll put in a bid. And it was a few dollars. And he won it. And he, it, it arrived in the mail. And what arrived was a collection of wire service stories and newspaper clippings about Earhart's disappearance. whoop de doo But also... <laughs> There was a typed verbatim manuscript of the personal diary kept by James Carey, the Associated Press correspondent aboard the Coast Guard Cutter Itasca during the Earhart flight and disappearance and search. Really? We were floored. Wow. Nobody knew that Carey kept a diary here, after 70 years at that time, was a detailed, intimate, day-by-day account of how the men aboard Itasca lived, how they felt about Earhart, Looney dame.
1: Oh, seriously.
2: <laughs> and the search, this never-ending search.
1: Well, how, and with, how and, long a period was it that they were out there?
2: How, how long? Uh-huh. Oh, God. Well, I, I okay, let's, let's think about that. Itasca was sent out there in time to be at Howland for Earhart's flight. And they, they were there uh, by like mid-June hmm. of 37 to help her. Yeah, And of course she didn't arrive and they were searching for her until the search was called off July 18th. So it just went on and on. <laughs> and they weren't happy about oh, that. Oh gosh. And Carrie also wrote about what the ship's officers were telling the press as opposed to what the logs reveal was really going on. Wow! We, we were getting the inside story here, on, on <laughs> and uh, nobody
1: how, had reported this before, or
2: nobody so, knew this information because this was Carrie's own diary, and huh. uh, th- this was his own personal story. Wow. Ultimately,
1: was he writing all along? Uh, oh or, yeah! Reporting. Now, you, so you have yeah, it is official... dated.
2: Yeah, yeah. and. Of course, we. This was a type transcription uh-huh. of what we knew had to have been a, a handwritten diary, uh-huh. and so we wanted. Okay, somebody got the real thing, the the diary from which this was transcribed, yeah. and we were able to determine that although Jim Carrey was dead, his son Tim Carrey lived uh, in Reston, Virginia, wow. down near near Washington, and we got in touch with him, and. He was thrilled to know that we had found that there was a transcription of his father's diary that he didn't know existed. Oh, wow. But he says, well, it might be in the stuff I have down in the basement because I've got all of his old stuff. And I know there's a whole bunch of stuff from the Earhart search. So another researcher and I went and spent a day with Jim and we (laughs) tore apart his basement Uh and found the diary
1: wow really and he didn't the son didn't really know what was there
2: whether he knew there was something there that was actually a diary that might be of interest to anybody it's just all of his
1: dad's old things yeah
2: (laughs) his dad's old things
1: yeah
2: so we were able to confirm that this what was in the transcription was was true it really had been written down wow i
1: wonder who did
2: and he had other notes that weren't in the diary just handwritten notes because Jim Carrey was in the radio room when Earhart was approaching Howland Island and being heard on the radio, and what he wrote in his notes conflicts to what was in the radio log and in some minor respects, and mostly it has to do with the very first time they heard Earhart, which was like at 2.45 in the morning, their time. They were listening for Earhart on her frequency. They expected to hear from her, and the first time it came through, there was just something on her frequency that the chief radio man that was listening, on his earphones, because mm-hmm. it wasn't on the speaker at that time. It was just on earphones, and he could hear somebody transmitting on 3105. He could hear her voice, but he couldn't make out when she, what she was saying. Oh. Carrie says that he heard the transmission and he heard her say, weather overcast. And the law doesn't say that, just as unintelligible. Oh. Well, if Carrie heard anything directly from Earhart, it had to be because the radio operator passed him the headphones.
1: Interesting. And he
2: happened to be listening when something did come through. That could 240- be understood. It could be understood. Well, weather overcast. Well, that's extremely important because if the weather was overcast, it means that Noonan could not get star sightings to keep them on course. Right. That had never been known before. So, yeah. this was a tremendous discovery. And we said, gosh, you know, this is dynamite stuff. Um, and after confirming that it was legitimate, we contacted the Associated Press thinking, well, they might be interested. I mean this really? this like, was their guy. I, Jim Kerry yeah, was and their guy. Great, what great publicity <laughs> for them. Mm-hmm. A P was just not was not what? just interested. They were thrilled. <laughs> the,
1: I I can imagine. They
2: were I I spent a day at their main office in Manhattan with their senior people planning how to release the news. That's that so cool. This was, because we had had this problem breaking through the publicity with the Iraq war. And they said, no, 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 we can take care of this, man. (laughs) One of their top journalists, named Richard Pyle, um, who had been the bureau chief in Saigon at the time of the fall of Saigon.
1: Wow.
2: Man, the stories Richard had. But I got to know him really well. And he and I worked together. He was to write a, a feature story about the discovery of the diary, and how it validates the book I just wrote, yeah. <laughs> and how Tiger's expedition the following summer might at last find the conclusive proof that will solve the Earhart mystery. <laughs> but of course, only if we can complete the budget. AP is gonna carefully pick when to release the story to catch a slow news day to get maximum coverage man, we couldn't ask for a better fundraising partner than the world's largest, most respected news organization. Seriously. Out there trying to help us raise money. <laughs> that just doesn't happen. Wow. They also wanted to put Richard aboard the uh, the ship with us and a photographer oh, wow. for the expedition. And of course they would pay his way uh, to do that. And so our, our fundraising prospects couldn't have been better. We also had a couple of sponsored team member applications that uh, looked promising. But this time the cavalry arrived too late.
1: Oh no, This was happening
2: in late December. We just didn't have time to implement all this. And although our fundraising prospects were great, you can't take prospects to the bank.
1: Right.
2: Naya is a business. They had to do what they had to do. And we couldn't make the required payment, and on January 3rd, Naya canceled the charter.
1: Wow. No hard feelings,
2: but they had to do what they had to
1: do. Really, really, that's a business. Well, so what did you do?
2: (laughs) Well, back in 1936, there was a, a popular Fred Astaire song. Nothing's impossible, I have found, for when my chin is on the ground, I pick myself up, dust myself off, and start all over again. (laughs) We'll talk about what we did in episode one of season seven of the Earhart Expeditions.
1: Sounds great. Thank you, Rick.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Earhart Expeditions is a serial history of Tiger's Twelve Expeditions to the South Pacific. We release a new episode each Tuesday. You can receive special bonus episodes and get access to Tiger's extensive video library by becoming a premium subscriber. Just go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search on Tiger, T-I-G-H-A-R. You can also be a part of the adventure and participate in research. Go to tiger.org and click on Join Tiger. See you next Tuesday.